Good to see everybody. Can I have you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. And if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to have you here this morning with us. Uh, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We find ourselves in chapter 16 uh, this morning, as we have been saying for the last few weeks. Uh, Jesus in chapters 13 through 16 is giving his farewell address to his disciples. This is the night before his crucifixion. It's probably around 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and he will be on the cross by 9 o'clock the next morning. Things are moving quickly. And he wants to share with them some final words uh, to prepare them and encourage them for what is coming. Now, one of the things that really troubled their hearts was earlier in the evening, he had said that he was going away and they couldn't go with him. For three and a half years, as his disciples, wherever he went, they went. When he slept, they slept. When they, he worked, they worked. They did not leave his side for three and a half years. And now he's saying he is going away and where he is going, they cannot follow him. And so in saying this, he was in essence telling them that they would have to carry on without him. Just because he was going away didn't mean the work of the kingdom was going to stop. They would have to continue the work of spreading the gospel and building God's kingdom on the earth in his, in his absence. And so upon hearing this, they, their hearts were immediately gripped with fear. Because, I mean, think about it. <laughs> they had come to depend on Jesus, right? Um, and now he's leaving them. I mean, how were they ever going to carry on this vital work? taking the gospel into all the world, into the centers of learning and culture like Athens, Alexandria, and other places. These are Galileans, most, for the most part, simple fishermen, uh, blue-collar guys. How were they ever going to continue the work he had started without him? And so Jesus, sensing their troubled hearts, began chapter 14 with the words, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he spends almost the entire 14th chapter comforting and reassuring them by giving them many promises designed to encourage their hearts for the difficult days ahead, especially the days when he would return back to his Father in heaven. And the main way Jesus encouraged his disciples that evening was by telling them he was not going to leave them alone and helpless like orphans. Yes, I'm going away, and you can't follow me, but I'm not going to leave you alone. Remember, the context is doing the work of the kingdom. How in the world are we ever going to do this work without Jesus? He understood that. He said, guys, I'm going, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. Instead, he promised he was going to send them another helper, another helper, the Holy Spirit, who would abide with them forever. He would never leave them. Turn back to chapter 14. Look at verse 15. He said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The Greek word for helper is parakletos. It's a combination of two Greek words. 
para, which means to come alongside or with, and then kaleo, the verb uh, that means to call. A parakletos was somebody that was called alongside to help. Uh, from what I understand, it was often used of a defense attorney. When a person was being accused of a crime, uh, and so they would call alongside themselves uh, a helper. Uh, in this case, an attorney who would stand with them and, uh, and, uh, and all and, and be there to help them through this, right? Now, Jesus said, I'm sending you another prokletas. And by the way, the word another in the Greek is alas, another, another of the, exactly the same kind. We'll talk about that more in a second. But if Jesus is going to send them another prokletas, who was the first parakletas? Jesus himself, who for three and a half years came alongside the disciples to teach them and to help them in their ministries in building God's kingdom. And yet now Jesus tells them he's going away. And again, how could they ever carry on this vital work of spreading the gospel without Jesus being with them? And of course, the answer that he just gives us is that Jesus is going to be with them. In another form, in the form of the Holy Spirit, verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. He's talking about this incredible thing we call the Trinity. I don't mean to be disrespectful, it's not a thing. It's a person. But three gods in one person. We're not, monothe we're not polytheists. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God that is manifested in three separate and distinct persons. So when one is with us personally, as they, Jesus was with them, the Holy Spirit was with them as well in the Father. Now Jesus is going back to the Father. He's going to send the Holy Spirit who will be, will be with them. But Jesus will still be with them through the Holy Spirit and the Father as well, right? So the Holy Spirit is, yes, a separate person, but he is still of the same God. He is the uh, third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Now, turn back to John 16. Let's look at verse 5. So he continues this idea of going away. He says, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Because... I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. They're, they were so overwhelmed with sorrow that he said he's going. They didn't even think to ask, well, where are you going? Or what? So he, he understands that, right? And so he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So guys, it begs the question, why should Jesus go away at all? I mean, he's the parakletos. Why send another parakletos of the very same kind, God in a different form, God the Son, being replaced with God the Spirit? It's the same God. Why go away at all? Why not just stay with them? That's a good question, one we have already studied. See, the idea is that Jesus, when he was on the earth physically, he was limited by that physical body to one place at a time, right? He couldn't be, if he was in Jerusalem, that's where he was. If he was in Jericho, that's where he was. If he was up in the Galilee, that's the only place he could be. 
The Bible teaches that God is an omnipresent spirit. Didn't Jesus say that in John 4, verse 24? God is spirit, right? God is an omnipresent spirit, and so was Jesus before his incarnation. In those days, John 1, verse 1 tells us his title was the Word, the Word. But when he became flesh and dwelt among us at the incarnation, he took on the limitations of that physical body. He became hungry. He got tired. God doesn't get hungry or tired. He's God. But God in human form, taking on a body of flesh, yeah, he took on the limitations of the flesh. He got hungry. He got tired. And to our point this morning, he was no longer, longer omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. Omnipresent, of course, means to be everywhere at once. To be everywhere at once. Now, when Jesus returned to the Father and prayed to the Father to send back the Holy Spirit, which was sent back upon the church, his disciples, uh, on the day of Feast of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 records this, right? When the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those disciples, he indwelt every one of them. Didn't he remember John 14? He is with you. He shall be what? In you. When the Spirit of God was poured out on Pentecost, after Jesus returned to the Father, the Spirit of God indwelt every believer. In those days, most of them just were clumped around Israel, of course, Jerusalem, and then up in the Galilee. Eventually, as the disciples spread out and began to preach the gospel to the known world, and then the gospel was taken to uh, remote parts of the earth. Today, as we sit here this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone into all the world. And there are disciples of Christ who are filled with the Spirit in every corner of our planet, right? And here's the thing. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 12. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, listen, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. What is he saying? Greater in magnitude? Well, no. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus healed lepers and fed thousands with little amounts of food. No, the disciples, he wasn't saying you're going to do greater works than I have done in the sense that they're more spectacular, but you're going to do greater works in scope. In other words, I can only be in one place at one, at one time. So I can only work in that one area, that locality. But when the Spirit comes, he's going to dwell all of my disciples, and wherever they go, I will be there. In that regard, the Spirit working through my body on the earth, the body of Christ, is going to be able to do miracles all over the world. He's going to do signs and wonders and, and preach the gospel and see people resurrected from uh, being dead in trespasses and sins. That You understand, right? He had to go back to the Father to pray the Father send the Holy Spirit who would indwell, yes, God in a different form, but still God. God the Spirit, right? So that's how the body of Christ was going to do greater works than Jesus had done. But he's talking about the work of the Spirit, right? The coming of the Holy, the Holy Spirit's ministry. And guys, this morning I want to start a little series which I've entitled The Ministry of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, okay, well, just what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I'm so glad you asked that. But before we look at that important question, guys, we need to answer an even more basic question, and that is this. Is the Holy Spirit a real person? 
Is the Holy Spirit a real person? Now, I bring that up because several surveys that have been taken lately among professing Christians, especially young adults in particular by Gallup and uh, Barna, you know, and other different organizations that do these polls among the Christian church, they went out and uh, asked a bunch of young adults who profess to be Christians if they believed that the Holy Spirit was an actual person. You'd be shocked. Well, the majority said no. They didn't believe the Holy Spirit was an actual, actual person. So what is he? Well, uh, they thought he kind of emanated from God like light and heat radiate from the sun. But they didn't believe he was, in fact, a real person. In a recent article I came across entitled, Most Adult U.S. Christians Don't Believe the Holy Spirit is Real, um, this came out of Arizona Christian University. It was a survey that they did. Uh, the author says, of an estimated 176 million American adults who identify as Christian, just 6% or 15 million of them actually hold a biblical worldview. This study showed. The study went on. The study shows in general that while a majority of, of America, uh, of America self-identified Christians, including many who identify as evangelicals, believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is the creator of the universe, more than half reject a number of biblical teachings and principles, including the existence of the Holy Spirit. Some 62% of self-identified born-again Christians contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or, or purity. Another 61% say that all religious faiths are of equal value. These are professing Christians. All religious faiths are of equal value. And 60% believe that if a person is good enough and does enough good things, well, they can earn their way into heaven. All these, the author says, all these positions challenge a biblical worldview, end quote. Yeah, you think? <laughs> Guys, I think it's fair to say that we have entered, if, even if we just got our foot in the door, we've entered into the apostasy. The New Testament writers warned us was coming in the last days and would actually infiltrate into the church, into the church. Apostasy comes from a Greek word that means a departure. In this context, a departure from the faith. That body of truth we call the New Testament that was delivered to the saints and that we are to earnestly contend for every day of our lives as Christians against the attacks of the devil. Well, we're not doing so good as the Church of Jesus Christ in general in America. But apparently from this survey and others, part of the last day's prophecy would be to deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that so important? Well, obviously, there's obvious reasons. But if he's the one that's going to be with us, our parakletos, as we go into all the world and preach the good news, the very ministry Jesus began and has now given to his church to complete, deny the Holy Spirit, you deny the power that we need to do the work God's called us to do. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Let me just say this to set up this series. So I'm sure some Christians would say, oh, I was kind of hoping on a financial series, uh, marriage, my marriage, really good. A series on the Holy ministry of the Holy Spirit, come on. Let me, say, let me tell you this. I believe 
the effectiveness, the fruitfulness, and the overall dynamic and victory that's going to characterize our lives as Christians, listen, will be directly proportionate, directly proportionate to your understanding of the Holy Spirit and how much you honor and submit to him and obey him with your life. I don't believe I've overstated that at all. The reason so many Christians are not doing very well in their walk and are not really uh, blossoming, blossoming as God is to, wants, more than conquerors. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit, Jesus said, right? Why is that? It's because many Christians do not honor the Holy Spirit. They don't even think about it. They don't even think about it. And now we understand many of them don't even think he's real. So guys, if that's the case, if everything depends on our understanding of the Holy Spirit, I think it behooves us to really listen to what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministry in John 16. When you see it in that context, how pivotal it is, right? And so let me ask you again, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? You say, well, if you ask me that, I say, well, it depends. Depends on what? Depends on who the Holy Spirit is ministering to at any given time, which is everybody, because he's God. But look, the ministry of the Holy Spirit will differ uh, when it comes to how he's dealing with unbelievers than his ministry will be when he's dealing with born-again Christians. So this morning, I want to start with just a look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the unbeliever, verses 8 to 11, primarily. So let's back up and start with verse 7. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus promised when he ascended back to his Father, he would send the Holy Spirit into the world, again, which happened on Pentecost, Acts 2. And when he has come, Jesus said, he will convict the world. He's talking about the world of unbelievers, obviously, of three things. Before we look at those three things, I want to focus on the word convict. That's the key word in this whole thing right here, okay? He's going to convict. Uh, it's a Greek word. In, in the Greek, it's a legal term. A legal term. That means to bring to light, to expose, to refute, and convince. That Greek word could also be translated to pronounce the verdict. Pronounce the verdict. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, The world may think that it is judging Christians, but it is the Christians who are passing judgment on the world as they witness to Jesus Christ. Believers are the witnesses. The Holy Spirit is the prosecuting attorney and the unsaved are the guilty prisoners. However, the purpose of this indictment is not to, not to condemn, but to bring salvation, end quote. And guys, that's exactly what Jesus said in John 3, verse 17. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Guys, conviction is God's way of showing a person his or her sin. Because if they never see themselves as sinners, guess what? They'll never see their need for a Savior. 
If they never see their need for a Savior, then they'll never turn to Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, as we read verse 8, let me read it to you again. When the, when the Holy Spirit has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. When we read those words, especially when we're younger believers, um, I believe many, if not most Christians, are prone to apply them to ourselves. These words to ourselves. In other words, we interpret Jesus' words as being directed at me as a Christian. That the Holy Spirit will convict me of my sins. The Holy Spirit will convict me of my lack of righteousness. And the Holy Spirit will convict me of the coming judgment for my sins, etc. We kind of look at ourselves as being the focus. But then Jesus went on to explain what he meant by further revealing to us that all this conviction of the Holy Spirit, listen, has himself, has Jesus, as the focus. Not you and me as Christians, for sure. I mean, yeah, Jesus is the focus of the conviction, but it's going to be worked in the Holy, by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of unbelievers. They are the focus. We'll get to the Holy Spirit's ministry for believers shortly. Don't ask me when. Not today, that I do know. So Jesus said in verse 8, when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin. Great. But then he explains or qualifies what he means in verse 9. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Let me just say this. Sin is a terrible thing. We, you know, we, we know that now as believers. Before we got saved, no, probably not. We didn't think, we kind of laughed at sin. Sin was a joke. Sin was, you know, what these religious Bible thumpers were always harping about. But sin was just fun. Just our lifestyle, right? But now that we are Christians, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And now we understand, because we have God's nature within us, right? We understand that sin is a terrible thing because it's an affront to God's holiness. Let me just say this. The word sin is a Greek word that literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. It was an archery term for hitting the bullseye on a target. Now God's word tells us, particularly in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned. All have missed the mark. Of course, the next question is, what does the mark or the bullseye represent? Well, we're not left to guess because Paul who wrote Romans, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us in verse 23 of Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short, listen, of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Well, it is perfection. Yes, but perfection with regard to what you might be thinking. All right? The perfection that Paul is referring to. In Romans 3.23, listen is perfectly keeping God's righteous standards as set forth in his divine law. God's law is, are his perfect, contains his perfect standard, right? Uh, a lot of Christians, because we're fighting against the concept of righteousness coming through the law or through, through your works, we're always fighting against that as evangelicals. We know that's wrong. So there are some Christians that want to make the law evil. 
The law is not evil, the law of God. Uh, Paul said in Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy and righteous and good. It's not the law that's the problem, it's our inability to keep the law. I'm getting ahead of myself. In the Old Testament, God's law consisted of 613 commandments. To break any one of them was to miss the mark, to sin, and to be guilty before God. But as I've said before, 613 commandments, that's a lot. So let's just kind of boil it down, distill it down to its most basic form, the ten we're most familiar with, the Ten Commandments, right? Um, and by the way, it's not the Ten Suggestions, it's, it's the Ten Commandments. Let's just limit ourselves to those as the mark, the bullseye. Now, in that regard, the mark then is keeping perfectly all the Ten Commandments of God your entire life without fail. Think about that. If you want to get to heaven by keeping God's commandments, you would have to keep every one of them, and not just through actions, but through thoughts. You can't lust, you can't hate, because now you're breaking God's commandments in your heart. So it's not just the outward actions, it's the inward attitudes of the heart that God looks at, right? But if you're going to get to heaven by keeping God's commandments, James tells us in chapter 2, verse 10 of his epistle, you better keep all of them perfectly your entire life. If you break one, you're a lawbreaker and you're going to hell. Just one if you break. That's why the Bible says the law is a curse. Not that it's bad, it's just a curse to us. We can't keep it to get to heaven. And it forces us to cry out after we've tried. That's what religion does, right? All the years we were religious, quote-unquote, and did all kinds of religious things, uh, thinking we were earning salvation. We knew that we were blown it all the time. And the, and the hope was that we would come to a point where we were so frustrated, so exhausted of our own efforts to gain righteousness, that we would fall on our faces before God, and we would cry out, God, I can't do it. I can't keep these laws. Is there another way I can, I can get to heaven through? Jesus said, I'm the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul said in Galatians, the law was never intended to make us righteous. It was only intended to bring us to Christ for salvation. Because we couldn't keep all those laws, obviously, right? But, but I'm, again, I, I want us to understand, we, we, everybody in this room will readily acknowledge the fact that, you know, God has commanded us to keep his laws, his commandments. But we all know that people don't live and treat others the way God has commanded them. We're all guilty of this. It's sin, which is a violating of God's commandments, that has caused so much death and destruction of human lives throughout the history of mankind. We all, we all know that our sins are a terrible thing. They're not just an affront to God, but they are a, a, um, a, a cancer in the human race that just eats everybody away in our path. It's destructive. It's, it's, it's terrible. We all know we've hurt people. We all know that, you know, because we have violated God's commandments, we are guilty of a lot of crimes against humanity. And yet, and yet, Jesus didn't say, the Holy Spirit would convict the people of this world of their sins, plural, as in lying, cheating, stealing, etc. 
Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict unbelievers of sin, singular. And then he went on to qualify, because they do not believe in me. Guys, the Holy Spirit is convicting the people of this world of one sin in particular, the sin of unbelief. In other words, the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, some would immediately jump on that and say, well, she's saying God doesn't care about all the other sins? Murder and stealing and adultery. He doesn't care about any of those? No, I didn't say that. I, I just said that, as Jesus tells us, that is not the main sin the Holy Spirit is really convicting people of. That's, we're the ones that go out into the world and try to convict people of all their sins. We're not the Holy Spirit. Stop that. Stop it, okay? Because we are not the Holy Spirit. He didn't tell us to go into all the world and, uh, you know, get in people's faces about how terrible they are and all the sins they're committing. The Holy Spirit is really convicting people of one sin in particular, the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. What are all the other sins? God doesn't care. Of course he cares about those sins. But listen to me. The law of God and the conscience of man will convict the sinner of his or her individual sins, plural, as God has written his laws in our hearts, and I mean all of our hearts, not just believers, but unbelievers as well. Romans 2. He's written his laws in all of our hearts, and listen, has placed within, within the heart of man an alarm system called conscience. Conscience. Now let me just say this. The way my mind works as a teacher, when I get into the Word and I start to study, it's my natural inclination to break things down. Because I, I want to see them in, in the little pieces and how they all fit together, right? But sometimes the way I like to study may not be the way you like to study, and I don't want to lose you, okay? So please try to bear with me. So God is, he has placed within all of our hearts his laws. We all know what's right and wrong innately, right? And then he has given to us, coded into our hearts, an alarm system called conscience. God's conviction, guys, is tied to our conscience, which in turn is connected to his laws, which he has written in our hearts. Conviction is triggered through guilt. And guilt is triggered when we violate one of God's laws, one of his commandments. We feel guilty. In that regard, guilt is the alarm, the siren, if you will, that begins to sound when we break God's righteous standard of perfect obedience to his law. Any sin triggers that alarm, right? Louder with regard to some sins than others. Some sins we've justified so much, it's, the Holy Spirit is a, barely a whisper. Or the alarm, I should say, is barely a a whisper in our hearts. <clears throat> Listen, when Christians or unbelievers violate one of God's laws, they feel guilty, which is God's way of warning them, all of us, that you know we have broken one of his commandments and need to repent. We need to get right with God before he imposes some kind of retribution. Now, what is this retribution? If we don't get it right with God and repent, it depends on the group. 
If you're a child of God and you break one of God's laws, you feel lousy. You feel guilty. That's good. What does God want you to do? Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness because he doesn't want to have to chasten or discipline his kids. He loves us. Now, he will discipline us because he does love us. What is the discipline designed to do? To bring us back into a place where we are in fellowship with him, where he can pour his blessings upon us again. But he chastens his kids. He punishes unbelievers. And when an unbeliever violates God's law, the conviction kicks in because it's, it's almost like, we'd say, hardwired into, into their being by God. And when the conviction kicks in, how does that happen? Through guilt. When does guilt happen? When they break one of God's laws or commandments or multiple commandments. And so what is the point there? God wants them to repent by coming to Christ. By coming to Jesus for forgiveness, where he can then cleanse them through the blood of Christ of all their sins and make them his children, where he can love on them and bless them and dote over them like he dotes over us, right? That's the goal. But getting back to what we're talking about this morning, Jesus' words, again, with regard to the Holy Spirit's ministry to unbelievers, again, when he said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, would convict the world of sin, singular, because they do not believe in me. Guys, the Holy Spirit is right now in the world convicting unbelievers of one particular sin, the sin of unbelief, the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. How does, he do, how does he do that? Through us. Through his people on the earth right now. Now hear me out. The Holy Spirit living in and working through our lives as Christians is radiating God's light through us. I am the light of the world, Jesus said, but then what did he say at one point? Now you are the light of the world. Because he knew the Holy Spirit was with his disciples, but one day he would come in them. And when the Spirit came in them, the Holy Spirit, who is light, he would radiate through each of God's... I'm talking about Spirit-filled, Christ-honoring, walking-in-the-Spirit Christians. I'm not talking about carnal Christians. I'm talking about those believers who take God's Word seriously, who every day want to, want to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the Spirit of God is able to radiate through them. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Holy Spirit uh, is day by day conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Right, The light in our life is getting brighter and brighter. And because of it, you don't even have to say much to the world. They can just see by the life you're living, there's something different about you, and sometimes they're drawn to the light, and sometimes they want to run from it. They can't handle it. I was told in first service, I um, heard somebody say years ago about Billy Graham being, uh, they were golfing, it was like a, a charity golf thing, and there was different, you know, four to a team, different teams. So, you know, I don't know who Billy got paired up with, but obviously at least one of them was an unbeliever. You know, Billy Graham was just doing his thing and playing golf, and about maybe the 10th or 11th hole, one of these guys said, just blurted out to Billy Graham, so you think you're so special? You think you're so holy because you're a Christian, right? 
Billy Graham had not said a, said a word to this guy. But the guy knew he was Billy Graham. He loved Jesus. He went all over the world teaching people about Jesus Christ. And that light was just too much for this guy who walked in darkness to, to deal with. He just blurted it out, right? I forgot the end of the story. Hopefully the guy got saved. But he was definitely under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? A guy like that's definitely under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So I'm, I'm going to say the guy got saved. I forgot, okay? Um, but, <laughs> but the idea is that the Spirit of God is working through the people of God. The more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we don't want to act like the world anymore. You want to make a statement to the people you work with and they start, somebody starts telling a dirty story, a joke, walk away. You don't have to say, that's terrible. How filthy could, that's re- terrible what you're saying. Just walk away. They get, the, they get the hint that you don't want to be around that kind of thing. It applies for anything. And so when you begin to radiate God's light from within the Holy Spirit, it immediately brings conviction to those in darkness. Now, again, some are drawn to the light, they get saved. Others want to extinguish the light. They want to persecute you out of existence. They want you to go away because they can't. Your, your life is a constant rebuke to their life. Turn to John 3. Obviously, these didn't, this wisdom didn't come from me. I'm going to tell you right now where I got it. I got it from the Lord Jesus, right? Here it is. Jesus said in John chapter 3, starting with verse 18, He who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done, have been done in God. And that's what we're talking about, all right? This is how the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The sin of not receiving Christ. Because Jesus is the answer. And most Americans, at least, have grown up with the gospel. I mean, most Americans know what the gospel is, basically, who Jesus is and why he came. And what he did on the cross and rose from the dead. Because the Holy Spirit is using us to convict them that by rejecting Christ, they're rejecting a good and holy and pure and clean life, which in their heart the Spirit of God is convicting them like crazy. It's not the life they're living at this moment. One author said, Christ is good and holy and pure. To reject him is to convict oneself of being opposed to goodness and holiness and purity and love. You don't have to say a word. Just love Jesus. And you're going to get a reaction. Good sometimes, other times not so much. But listen to me. Those unbelievers, guys, who continually refuse to receive Jesus into their hearts by faith, but instead continually harden their hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, listen, they will eventually commit what the Bible calls, and Jesus in particular called, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
In Matthew 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men, not in this life nor in the life to come, he goes on to say. And guys, just what is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, in a nutshell, and I think we're going to get into this in a little more detail in the coming weeks, but in a nutshell, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is rejecting Jesus as your Savior. In other words, it is the, it is the sin of unbelief. Now, please understand, okay, this is very important. Please understand that it is unbelief that condemns a person to hell, not, not the committing of individual sins. A person could, quote-unquote, clean up their life, quit all their bad habits, and still be lost and go to hell. The only sin that will damn a person to hell for all eternity is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Most people don't understand that because most churches aren't really teaching that anymore. Most people don't understand what God has clearly said on this subject. That it isn't how good they are or how bad they are that determines whether they make it into heaven or spend eternity in hell. Listen, their sins, plural, are not the determining factor. What determines whether a person makes it into heaven or is sent to hell, is whether they accept or reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. The New Testament is full of this truth. But again, most churches aren't really teaching the Bible verse by verse, so they, churches, pastors, gravitate to hobby horse subjects that people want to hear. It's all about building a big church in the last days, right? Which means tickling ears, you know. You're not going to teach on sin too much, if ever. You're going to teach on success, how to be wealthy, healthy, build a big business, have the nicest house and cars in town, that kind of thing. That's what people want to hear today. And if a pastor is inclined to build a big church, he's going to do it by tickling ears. When you come to a church that teaches verse by verse, our goal is to teach the whole counsel of God. Everything. Because Paul the Apostle said that. A good pastor, a good leader, teaches the whole counsel of God. That's what we teach verse by verse. That way you're going to get everything. And, 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 and nothing is left out, right? But again, what determines whether a person makes it into heaven or is sent to hell is whether they accept or reject Jesus as their Savior. Guys, we all know this is evangelicals. Jesus died for the sins of everyone. That was 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for the sins of everyone who would be born into this world. Everyone. 1 John 2, verse 2. He himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a big fancy word that means God is satisfied through what Jesus did. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world world again first john 2 verse 2 guys when jesus hung on that cross and said it is finished right before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit he was saying that the work of redemption had been completed sin had been paid for and what that allowed god to do 
And it wasn't just at that moment, because Re Revelation 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Do you realize the gospel is preached in the Old Testament? It started in Genesis 3.15 with, uh, you know, seed of the woman. And uh, the woman doesn't have seed. She has the egg. The man has the seed. Uh, the reference to the seed of a woman talking about Messiah would, was a reference that he would be virgin born. That was the first glimpse of the gospel. The gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. Of course, much clearer in the New, Right? But when Jesus died on the cross and it is finished, what he was saying is the work of redemption is done. Sin has been paid for, and that allowed God to offer a pardon. Listen, to every man, woman that would ever be born and walk on this fallen world, every one of them God was offering a pardon. This pardon is a gift. That's what the word grace means, a gift. I mean, for by grace... We have been saved, right, through faith. This pardon is a gift. A gift that is to be, listen, received by faith, not a reward that must be earned through works. In Romans 6, as Paul is continuing his um, line of thought, he said in Romans 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus already died for everyone's sins on Calvary's cross. In that regard, guys, the whole world has been, listen, technically pardoned. But whether or not a person is actually pardoned depends on whether or not they receive God's pardon, whether or not they, they receive God's pardon. Or in other words, whether or not they accept Jesus as their Savior. It really is up to them what they do with God's gift. You can receive the gift. You can ignore the gift. You can knock it out of God's hands, so to speak, and trample all over it. It's up to you. But if you're going to be pardoned, you have to receive God's pardon by faith. It reminds me of a true story, and I've read this before, Reminds me of a true story that comes right out of our own American history. True story. It says, back in 1830, a man named George Wilson was convicted of robbing the United States mail. He was sentenced to be hanged. President Andrew Jackson issued a, issued a pardon for Wilson, but he refused to accept it. That never happened before. Well, now what do we do? Nobody receives a pardon from death. Well, this guy did. So they didn't know how to handle it. This thing went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so it went all the way up to the Supreme Court where Chief Justice Marshall concluded that Wilson would have to be executed. He said, I'm quoting Marshall, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged, end quote. And guys, this applies to God's pardon as well, which we all know was not written on a worthless piece of paper. A pardon that was bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. And, it, and as even as precious and priceless as this pardon is, it is worthless unless 
it is accepted by the one it is being offered to. Reject God's pardon, it's no longer a pardon. Maybe you've heard some unbelievers say, I can't believe in a God who sends people to hell. And to that I always respond, well, God doesn't send anyone to hell. All the people who wind up in hell are going to be there because they've chosen to be there. See, the Bible says God didn't even make hell for people. Hell was made for the devil and his angels. The de Lucifer, who was the original rebel of the universe and led a rebellion against God where a third of the angels followed him in his rebellion. God made a place for them to spend eternity called hell. But if a person on earth wants to follow Lucifer, they're going to follow him all the way to where he's going to spend eternity, and that's in hell. If a person winds up in hell... It is not God's fault. God is offering them a pardon. If you don't want to accept it, and you want to continue on the way you've been going, living as a rebel against God, then when you wind up in hell, don't say God is not a God of love. How could he send people to hell? You're in hell because you've chosen to be there. I think it was Spurgeon who said, if a person goes to hell, they have to step over the bruised and battered body of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on Calvary's cross to keep them from going to hell. Which means if you want to go to hell, you can get there. It's not going to be easy. You've got to step over the bloodied and beaten body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to resist all the conviction of the Holy Spirit for all the years of your life. If you try hard enough, you can make it there. Guys, we're done. Let me just say this. To reject Jesus as your Savior is to reject God's loving pardon he is offering to you. Again, paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That person who refuses God's pardon, as the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 29, that person who refuses God's gift has trampled the Son of God underfoot, and counted the blood that he shed to save them on Calvary's cross, a worthless thing, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Because God is offering you a gift you don't deserve. Me, I, I didn't deserve it. Salvation. But he's still offering it. What an insult for God to offer something like eternal life to people that don't deserve it, and then to have them slap that gift out of his hand and say, I don't want it? Wow. Look, I don't know everybody here this morning. I don't know your hearts. And I know there's people watching online. Can I just say this and we'll close? Receive God's pardon in your life today. Don't put it off. Well, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow's not promised to anyone. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. Nobody is ever promised a tomorrow. And if you should die before tomorrow comes and you never have a chance to receive Christ, well, you'll never have a chance to receive Christ ever again. There is no, no second chance. I mean, isn't that what the gospel is when you think about it? Go into all the world, Jesus said to his disciples, and preach the gospel to all people. What does what he say? Go into all the world and offer them my pardon. I paid for it with my own blood. It's a free gift. 
Go into all the world and tell people the good news. They don't have to spend eternity in hell. I, I died for their sins. I was beaten that they should be saved. I was bruised for their iniquity. The chastisement for their peace was laid on me, and by my stripes they're all healed. Tell them the good news. I'm offering them a pardon. How, how sad. So many will reject that pardon. A pardon that will actually pardon them if received. A pardon that technically has pardoned them, but they have to receive it. Won't you please receive God's pardon today? Don't put it off. This is not a game. It, it, this is not a game. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart or kick the can down the road, so to speak. Well, I'm still sowing my wild oats. A lot of young people think this way. Who went to church, grew up in church, went to Awanas, uh, Sunday school, Bible camp. Uh, I know it's all true. I know Jesus is my Savior. I'm, I just want to sow a few more wild oats. You know how many young people are going to be in hell because they wanted to sow their wild oats a little while longer and death came? Don't harden your heart. Receive Jesus as your Savior. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin. The sin of not believing in Christ. Don't resist any longer. Ask Jesus into your heart today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your incredible love toward us and how you gave us your son to die that we might be saved. And Lord Jesus, you were a willing sacrifice. Nobody took your life from you. You gave it freely for the sheep. And Lord, I pray that anyone here this morning or is watching online that has been bound by the devil in unbelief, that, Lord, you would smash the prison, break the chains of unbelief, that, Lord, you would flood the light of your truth into their hearts, that they would receive you right now before another moment passes, that they would get saved and become one of your children, having a place reserved for them in the kingdom of heaven forever that they will inherit someday. So, Lord, thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.